Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast, I'm James, this is Pete. G'day everyone. It is the 26th of March and this is episode 102. We've got a huge show for you guys coming up. We are going to, well not us, but Renee Gorman has been out in Sydney, she has been on the case mm. and she has landed us two big interviews. Christina Hoff Summers, the factual feminist, really cool thinker. Renee is going to be talking to her That's later in the show. Should be awesome. Really looking forward to that one. Christina Hoff Summers. Awesome thinker, can't wait to see, uh, well, hear what they discuss. And she's also going to be talking to Joanne Tran, who got a bit viral after <laughs> she did. Uh, look, can she you did. be partially viral? You can be partially viral. Uh, when uh, In the wake of the Children's Climate Rally, or whatever the exact name of that was, but mm. when all those students skipped school to go protest climate change. That was the protest with the funny banners. Yeah, remember the funny banners? Man. All those funny banners. But anyway, Joanne stayed in school that day and she then talked to Sky News after school broke up because that's when you want to do it. Um, she talked to Sky News about what her experiences were at the pro- uh, what her experiences were staying at school and why she did and why she wasn't uh, part of it. Also and had a piece in the Daily Telegraph. Yeah, yeah. So a big week for Joanne. So Renee's going to be talking to her about how she came to it because uh, she's still in school. So it's pretty cool to hear uh, a voice like that. And most importantly... Joanne is a Generation Liberty member. Yes, as many of our listeners should already be, and if they're not, they can. Where can they go, Nina? I know we usually wait till after later in the show, but you know, Nina, came up. Nina's asleep. Came up organically. Yeah, sure. You can visit the website ipa.org.au. And Generation Liberty is, is a, in there. In there. <laughs> Uh, that's for young people who want to join the IPA. All right, uh, let us get into... We've got a lot of stuff to discuss at the top. A really big week for serious news. And if there's one place that I would trust to deliver serious news and serious analysis, yeah. it is us. Uh, big stuff. Uh, I think we should start with the Mueller report. Do it. If you Let's would. do it. No, can you do the thing? Mueller. <laughs> Okay. Pete's, Pete's really found that funny. It's uh, literally the first time anyone's made that joke. <coughs> All right. uh, so anyway, this is the thing that people have been waiting for for about two years now. This was going to be the thing that indicted Trump. This is going to be the thing that would make him sir resign, sir. Uh, and unfortunately for, well, you know, there's two ways you can take this and there's two ways people are taking this. So the key letter, which was um, sent by the Attorney General, William Barr, uh, on behalf of the Mueller report, as the one key sentence, this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime. It also does not exonerate him. Not the smoking gun that the Democrats wanted, but also, you know, since we don't actually have the Mueller report, there might some be something in there that someone can use, is the idea. But it is extremely disappointing because people have been waiting two years for this report and it is a gigantic letdown. Well, Trump is so crazy to go on about the deep state and fake news. I, I, I can't understand where he gets stuff like that from. Of course, Mueller used a team of 19 lawyers, 40... FBI special agents to issue more than 2,800 subpoenas, execute nearly 500 search warrants, obtain more than 230 orders for communication records, and there's actually quite a few of these, issue requests to 13 foreign countries, interview more than 500 witnesses, and this is what he's come up with. Yeah, uh, which is like, because there's now the take of, uh, oh, the Mueller report didn't go far enough. We need to hand this over to another committee, which can uh, go even further. It's like, how much further does this need to they go? They just need to do a proper job of it, James. <laughs> they, they skimmed it. They brushed over it, yep. and now they need what? to really investigate it. Yeah, of course, the Democrats are calling for the report to be published. This um, All we've seen so far is this letter from the Attorney General, of course, yeah. who's an official appointed by Trump. So, uh, as summarising the report, um, and apparently it's very unlikely that it ever actually will be published. 
Yeah, well, someone's going to, like, you know, in the age of WikiLeaks, someone is going to get that report That's out true. there. Though. Like, we'll eventually get it. It's just such a public um, interest that yep. someone's going to leak it to someone. And certainly parts of it will be published, but not the whole thing. Yeah, um, but just, it's, it's a tough week for lefties who have oh. really been waiting two whole years for this one. The Twitter meltdown was delicious. I really enjoyed scrolling through Twitter on Saturday. Uh, and you know, my heart goes out to him because uh, <laughs> well, we're compassionate people. You yeah. know, we could we can extend a hand. Look, we've all been really, we've all really looked forward to something yeah. in our lives <laughs> yeah. and been disappointed. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. As you know, I'm a Melbourne supporter. You're a Richmond <laughs> supporter. We've we've all been we, there. We know what you're going through. Um, because this, he you was, just got to hope that the draft picks next year for the Mueller report are very good. That's right. Hopefully, the next one's better. The um, special prosecutor, um, this guy Mueller, literally became almost a religious Mueller. religious figure in the last few years. There were, mm-hmm. you know, they sold candles with yeah. his image on it. Uh, stuff like that. Saturday Night Live had All I Want for Christmas is You, meaning him. Um, so, yeah, this deliver. was massive. You know him. what I'm looking forward to? I'm going to give it about two weeks before Mueller was in on it too. Becomes a thing. Well. Like, Mueller's part of it. Yeah, that holiday to Russia. Further. That holiday to Russia. Yep. Drinks a lot of vodka. Mate, you when, do he was, when he was in Russia interviewing all these people, how do we know what they were really talking exactly about? Right. All right, so should we move on? Yeah, because it's also been a tough week for lefties in New South Wales, Pete. Okay, let's do New South Wales. I'm still on my computer from last week, so I'm scrolling everywhere. Pete's wrestling with uh, simple 21st century technology is my favourite subplot of the last few weeks. Well, and it's delicious to watch him go. It is It is easy to write it up. Anyway, so the coalition... Pete signed out of technology with the invention of the abacus. That was it for him. <laughs> He'd seen the light. He didn't need anything more. Some, you, can, you, can, you know, we have this whole decluttering movement these days, I think. You know, you can, you can, let's be simple. Anyway, New South Wales election was on the weekend. The coalition won. They got 48 seats, 98, 94 seat house. So that means that I'm no mathematician. I'll get my abacus out. That is a win for the coalition. What was interesting about this, of course, though, is that every single party, so sorry, the Liberals, Nationals, Labor and the Greens all had a smaller vote than last time, which is pretty amazing. So obviously there's a deep cynicism in the electorate about politics at the moment. Of course, the shooters... And fishers, shooters, fishers, and farmers um, had a had a very large vote. They actually won two seats in the lower house. They got eleven point two percent of the vote. Uh, interestingly, their two seats cover sixty percent of the geographical area of New New South Wales. James, so mm. make of that what you will. They're, they're the co- rising. The coalition performed better than expected. Labor leader Michael Daly has stepped down. Uh, yeah, it does strike me that if you are in a debate, you should know the costings of your own policy. That is my main takeaway from the New South Wales thing. Like, if you're in a debate two days after an election, don't be bad. That's a very good point, especially if you're a leader. Yeah. Like, if you're a bit of a nuffy on you know, the back benches, <laughs> yeah. people will forgive you, but not if you're No, not charge. if you're, like, the guy. And so now the coalition will get on with spending the $28 billion in, in electoral spending they promised during this process. Fantastic. Because if there's one thing uh, Sydney needs more of, it is government projects. That's right. Because they just simply don't have enough light rail at the moment. And uh, another thing, climate change is not a big issue. It barely rated it, I mentioned, during this whole thing. Yeah, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, there's lessons for the federal government, I guess. Um, maybe things aren't as bad as people thought. And it does seem to be that people actually really like election spending, which is, you know, not great, but... Uh, Apparently that's a lesson. It is anyway, a challenge. To do uh, looking forward podcast, the IPA, another that's podcast right. from the IPA's podcast network. Uh, we were just recorded Ooh, one this network. morning. Yeah, it's oh, it's a it's a it's a movement. Uh, so lifestyle choice. Yeah. Uh, so 
Uh, that comes out tomorrow. They're going to be talking for the first 16 minutes about the New South Wales election, all the things that they saw, all the things that came up and what they thought of it. It's a really good discussion. So if you aren't already a subscriber to Looking Forward, make sure you, like whatever podcast platform you're listening to this right now, you can also listen to Looking Forward. Just go in the search and subscribe because uh, you don't want to miss that if you do want to know more about the New South Wales election. If you want 14 more minutes yeah. from the two minutes we just did. Yes. <laughs> and then t- And I don't know why you would. To be honest, I thought we covered everything. Uh, I don't but, know uh, if there's much more to talk about. That's yeah. all right. No. <laughs> different strokes. All right, different. Yeah, exactly. All right, now uh, we've covered two big losses for the left this week in the report and New South Wales election, but they did have a slight win, um, I guess. But anyway, Jordan Peterson, big fish. Everyone knows who that is guy is by now. Um, he had recently accepted a two-year fellowship from the Cambridge University's Divinity of. Uh, Faculty of Divinity, not mm. Divinity of Faculty. <laughs> We're not that uh, worshipping of intelligentsia yet, but give it a few months. But anyway, the uh, Faculty of Divinity offered him a two-year fellowship to just go over and talk about uh, God and all the stuff that he does, because you know a lot of what he does is God-focused and lectures on the Bible and just, stuff. Just talk about a couple of trivial topics, yeah, yeah. as Peterson loves to do. <laughs> yeah, just uh, small talk Peterson, they call him. But anyway, uh, they then had a lot of pressure from students at the university and student union groups in the university, and and they've now rescinded his offer. Uh, I'll read out here a spokesman for the university's quote. Cambridge is an, inclu- Cambridge is an inclusive environment and we re- expect all of our staff and visitors to uphold our principles. There is no place here for anyone who cannot. We are inclusive of everyone except people we disagree with. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, definitely not inclusive. Yeah. As in other places yeah. as well. <laughs> we are inclusive of open-minded people and no one else. This is a fundamentally exclusive thing that's yeah. happened. Uh, so Jordan Peterson wrote an absolutely withering blog post in response to it which everyone should go and read it is on his website we also link to it in hey what did i miss uh last week i nearly said yesterday that's uh throwback to when we recorded this on fridays anyway um yeah you gotta go read that response my favorite quote if i may share pete mm. uh so he's he says at the end, I think that it's no bloody wonder that the faith is declining and with it the values of the West as its fragments with cowards and mountebanks of the sort who manifested themselves today at the helm. I wish them the continued decline in relevance over the next few decades that they deeply and profoundly and diligently work towards and deserve. That's a riot act. Yeah. I, I felt subsequent guilt. <laughs> like, that's just such a withering one. I'm like, oh, glad I'm not the uh, faculty of divinity. I will get that right at one point in this podcast. One of the things I like about Jordan Peterson is he says bloody a lot. Mm. Um, so that's a good Big thing. Big fan of bloody. The other thing in that quote that you mentioned was the term mountbanks. Yeah. So I went and Googled that because I didn't know what that was. Yeah, thanks, because I didn't either. A mount, I, mean, I don't think many people do, but a, a mountbank is a banks. doctor. What's that, sorry? No, except mountbanks. Oh, they okay. Well, that is. Yeah. They know, They're yeah. a doctor. A doctor that mounts a bench in the market and boasts his infallible remedies and cures. From oh. the 1570s from the Italian Montebanco, contraction of Monta and Banco. All right. Look. Uh, Has anyone else that was wondering? Not, not to. Um, quack or juggler. Yeah. Uh, I'm not usually one to give Jordan Peterson advice. There's better insults out there. I like You can't it. follow up cowards with mountebanks. If that's what a mountebank is, you cannot follow up cowards with Well, I think, you know, that, I mean, everyone went and looked for it and I think it was a good one. Yeah. All right. Agree to disagree. That's uh, uh, actually, you know what? No, agree to disagree. This is the end of the podcast. All right. Uh, shall we talk Brexit? Because we haven't done that enough. Let's talk Brexit. Before we talk Brexit, we should say that oh. this has been changing okay. as we've sort of just been preparing for the podcast this morning. So if yep. this is out of date by the time you get it, don't blame us. Yep. Don't blame us for any factual errors either. And it's don't blame us for any other errors at any point in the show. Any stutters? 
Not our fault. It's Brexit's fault. Or for poor analysis. Anyway, so Tory. So what we've seen this morning is Tory Sir Oliver Letwin is, uh, has successfully attempted to. Um, sorry, I wrote this before this happened. Um, to be granted a series of indicative votes. Now, what that means is, so they had a vote for that this morning. This guy was successful. What that means is, on Wednesday, I think in Britain they'll be having a series of indicative votes, which are non-binding votes on various styles of Brexit. So previously we've had Theresa May go, here's the option, you know, yay or nay. Now we're going to have is this uh, presumably a series of different types of Brexit that they'll all vote on to see which one's the most popular and then which way they might go forward following that. Yep. So, you know, there's the Norway-style thing and there's the Canada-style thing, which I didn't know there was a Canada-style thing, but apparently well, Canada's Canada Canada left the EU, yeah. So um, there's that. So that's going to happen on Wednesday. It's What the interesting thing about this is, of course, is that it's kind of like the MPs taking control from the government. It's a little bit unprecedented um, in Brit- British history. I understand it's happened a little bit before, but not very often. And then on Thursday, following that, I think there's the third and final vote, and then if it doesn't work they'll extend it to April 12th. Right. Because I was going to say, you have three days. Yeah, like right. Usually at this well, point in a group assignment, we try and like get it towards one person. We try and, try and get it to the entire House of Commons. Well, this group assignment is, is a bit of a hot mess yeah. at the moment. But So they have a, a just like a day of discussion tomorrow and then they have these non-binding votes on Wednesday. Well, I was going to say, so if there's one thing, because we Pete and I have been monitoring Brexit pretty closely since uh, it started, mm. uh, and if there's one thing I've always felt it needed, it was more cooks. Uh, yeah. You just needed more people involved in making deals and designing deals. There just wasn't enough people involved. Yeah, I think I think giving a massive group of opinionated people... Look, who knows? Maybe maybe it'll end up better. I don't know. I yeah. don't know how this stuff normally works. In fact, works, I actually think uh, there's not enough chefs. So what I propose is that every single person in England has to design their own Brexit deal. You can't... Uh, like, you know, you can't have two copies of the same one. Mm-hmm. Every single person has their own Brexit deal. Every single person designs it and then free vote on the winner. I think that's direct democracy million, at its very 60 best. million different deals. Let's see how it goes. On that, James, this talk of another people's vote, I reckon it would be so funny. Yeah. Like, imagine it just won again. I'd, I'd happily bre- Brexit stutter along for two years, every two years, mm-hmm. as long as it just kept getting up. Yeah. It would just be so funny. Just continually getting dunked on. It's like, hmm. Maybe we should try again. So, but, I mean, like, but the thing is, of course, it might not get up. But the polling is unclear. So I'd love to see that happen again. There was a big rally in London last week, with, which was basically just rich people telling the peasants they got it wrong. Yep. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later We will in talk the show. about that later. And, of course, my standard position on Brexit is the Queen. She just announced that they're out. Yep. In an interview on the... Who, oh, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. I don't know who... The podcast are, guy. Oh, the... Um, Neil something. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, man. Oh, well, I've forgotten the greatest name in podcasting was, history. How could you? It was downloaded so many times. It was, uh, and just cost so little money to uh, put it all together. <laughs> we might have to... Just um, go back later in the show. Uh, sorry, go back to earlier episodes of the show if you don't know what I'm talking about. Because uh, Liam Fox, that's his name. Liam Fox there you go. has single-handedly put the podcasting world on notice. I knew you'd get there. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, so we'll keep monitoring that. Again, my takeaway is... With every week in Brexit, it's I, it's both a huge week for Brexit and literally nothing happens, and that will be my default position until something actually does happen. And the other thing about it is, is that every week is a new thing that you have to work out what it is. Yeah, like that indicative vote thing mm. that was a bit painful to get my head around. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, I don't remember seeing that in the initial ballot form, no. which was like, uh, should the EU leave? Uh, sorry, should Britain leave the EU? Yes, no, indicative ballot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I often see was indicative exactly. ballot. Our backstop. Was like, <laughs> and you just like, you can tell the journos are like, oh, they have to leave the pub, work out what <laughs> these things are. And you can tell the ones that just haven't quite got it. There's like a few paragraphs. Pub. And you're like, that's definitely not it. Yeah. Anyway. 
Yeah, ex- like, and every single few days you have to look up a, a legal precedent from 1648 yeah. to, to see the last time Parliament was like this. Yep. So, <laughs> yeah. Figure it out. All right, cool. Uh, so, one more thing uh, we should discuss and we'll get into uh, some free speech news. But anyway, today's a big day for freedom of speech in Australia. Uh, Dr. Peter Ridd's trial is just beginning as we record. Uh, we've got Gideon Rosner at the scene. He's reporting live from Parliament. So he is giving uh, IPA members and people that have signed up to the newsletter that's available on ipa.org.au daily updates of what's happening with Ridd. It's a huge day for freedom of speech and for academic inquiry and for the science around climate change. There's a whole lot of themes and factors going into this one. Uh, so if you do want to know about this case and if you do want to know what's happening at the court, make sure you're going over to ipa.org.au. There's a banner there. You can sign up for daily briefings uh, and Gideon is just going to tell you all about it. He's your man on the spot. Imagine just getting in a week a daily email from Gideon with the latest news. Yes. What could be better? What could be better? Um, and if you do want to hear more about it, he was on the show, the Young IPA podcast, last week, and we talked to him about what is at stake. So, yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what happens there. All right. Uh, Fantastic. Yep. Let us talk about... Uh, we're going to rehash <laughs> an argument. Rehash. Yeah. Pete and I, That's what we got to the want. bottom of something. They want stuff microwaved up. Yeah. <laughs> we found cold. some leftovers and uh, we're throwing them all together yeah. in a big stew. I mean, pizza for breakfast. Pizza for breakfast. Uh, but seriously, so a few weeks ago, the news came through that Trump was looking to make an executive order to protect freedom of speech on American college campuses. Yep. And Pete and I had a bit of a tiff as to what that meant. And now the exact, new, like, the exact uh, structure of the executive order has come to fruition, Pete. Well, one of the features of the executive order is that it's very vague. Um, so the exact structure, saying the exact structure in there might be a bit of a stretch, but uh, as James alluded to last Thursday, they signed an executive order that will push universities to do more for freedom of speech. That It said uh, many universities have become increasingly... Ho- sorry, the president said many universities have become increasingly hostile to the First Amendment and free speech under the guise of speech codes, safe spaces and trigger warnings. These universities have tried to restrict free thought, impose total conformity and shut down the voices of great young Americans like those here today. So uh, the order differentiates between research grants and other types of federal grants, but basically what it is, and it doesn't make exactly clear what standard various government agencies will use to decide whether universities are violating students' free speech rights. So as such, it sort of serves mostly as a declaration of support for the First Amendment and a sign that the Trump administration is paying attention to this issue. Now, as James alluded to a couple of weeks ago, we had one of those vicious arguments that characterises this podcast. Ben and I didn't speak for two weeks after it. Uh, so, well, Which you know, the next podcast James thinks weird. that the, the federal government should be getting involved in free speech in university. And whilst I, I agree that in a, fer, in a perfect world, that would be great, and in a perfect world, governments wouldn't fund universities, and then stuff like this wouldn't matter. Universities could do whatever they want, and the market can decide. But it, this is a good second best option, and that's my argument. Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm still standing by my one, which is the second you uh, like. There's a precedent of the government can talk about freedom of speech at universities, uh, and the way that you know some very radical left wing has started to say, "Well, hate speech isn't free speech." Then someone can say, "Well, if you let Milo Yiannopoulos speak at your campus, then you are not protecting freedom of speech because that's hate speech, and we're not gonna, we're going to take away federal funding." So, whichever way. This goes, people can just start taking away or giving funding based on what kind of speech they like, which is, you know, if I don't... So if Trump says he's going to protect freedom of speech, that's good. Do I trust Elizabeth Warren with the same power if she ever gets up? Probably not. She already has the same power. What do you mean? 
Well, if she well if she's present, she'll have the same. Yeah, power. yeah. That, well, I'm just saying, like, but it's she's not going to not do it. Yeah, but I want to be able to fight both of those things. I can't just like pick and choose one or the other. I think you can. I think you know. Look, universities all around the world get billions and, and, edu- and all types of education get billions of dollars of funding. You know, to indoctrinate students with postmodernism and stuff like that. Every kid in Australia has that. Well, every kid in Australia, but kids in Australia in the public sector have these cross curricular priorities funded by us. And like this is like one thing that says you know. We're gonna, you're going to have free speech. Uh, I think it's fine. All right, fair enough. Uh, so that's our opening arguments, and we'll take this off air and outside. And I also think that it's vague enough so that it's not, you know, it's basically just him muscling on a culture war right? rather than actually... Well, if there's one thing I like, it's vague executive orders. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> we are now 20 minutes into the show, and we do have Christina Hoff Summers to get to, so we should probably start wrapping these things up. Uh, but first, uh, here's what you can go see at ipa.org.au in the last week if you uh, haven't already been. So we've got Jennifer Marahassi talking about uh, the Dr. Rita Pid tri- Dr. Peter Ridd <laughs> trial. Uh, uh, the court case and uh, the fake photographs are the heart of it so if you do want to hear more about what Jennifer Marahassi has to say about Peter Ridd's court case you can go to the website you've also got Bella Debrera in a stouch with the University of Sydney academic who was big into uh, the idea that in the wake of Christchurch universities simply cannot accept the Ramsey Centre Foundation's money because apparently those two things are linked Uh, the uh, academic is Nick Reimer so you can hear uh, sorry you can read Bella in the Australian taking him to task about that you can also read Evan Mulholland in The Spectator Australia. He's talking about what uh, the federal government rebanning Milo Yiannopoulos from Australia. If you remember, they banned. Then they said you can come back in and after Christchurch, no more Milo. Uh, so you can talk. Uh, you can hear Evan take on that one. And you can read John Roscombe talking about the unions and superannuation and how, how much money that unions are getting from superannuation and what that's going to mean for the future. That's all at ipa.org.au. Just in the last week, it's a really cool website, so head on over and read all of those articles. But me. Thank you guys so much for listening and subscribing. We're available on all good podcast apps and through the IPA website. And if you are listening to us through the IPA website, thanks so much for listening, but it would be better for you and easier for... Well, it would be easier for you and better for us and also the other way around. If you would just listen through us uh, through a podcast app, so if you use Apple Podcasts or if you've got an Android phone like Pocket Casts or any of the other ones, Stitcher, Premium, etc., uh, head on over there. You can subscribe and all of the podcasts will go straight to your phone uh, whenever we drop one, which would be great. You can also listen to the Looking Forward podcast through that. And if you are listening through Apple Podcasts, make sure you're leaving us and Looking Forward. That five-star review helps new people come to the show. Uh, Nina, if people are already listening to all of our podcasts and they want to support the IPA's work more, where can they go to become a member and where can they go to donate if they already are a member? Well, first of all, visit the website, zipa.org.au, and find that buttons. There's two buttons, donate to if you want to donate. Or if you want to become a member instead, just click on the join button. And starting as low as $22 per year, you become one of the loudest voice of freedom in Australia. Very cool. Let's go to those interviews now. My name is Renee Gorman, and I am the National Manager of Generation Liberty. And today I have the great pleasure of sitting down with something of a personal hero of mine, Christina Hoff Summers. Christina Hoff Summers is an American author and philosopher. She is currently a resident scholar at the American Enterprise uh, Institute, and she is known for her critiques on modern feminism. She is also known as the factual feminist and one of my favourite titles, Based Mum. Yeah, (laughs) the gamers (laughs) called me that. (laughs) And uh, she's currently on tour in Australia for a series of on 
stage, would you call them debates or discussions? Conversations. Conversations. Whatever that means. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first one is on in on Friday, the 29th in Sydney. And the second one on is on the Sunday, the 31st in Melbourne. And you can still buy tickets? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So first off, or just like, uh, first off, um, I find it interesting that you're known for your critiques of modern fe- feminism, but you still call yourself a feminist. Personally, I've struggled with the title until I actually read your work and came across the term equity feminist. So I'd just like to hear you explain that and kind of these two schools of feminism. Yes, well, an equity feminist, and I call myself that, and I'm glad that you call yourself that, it's simply someone who wants for women what they want for everyone. Equality, basic fairness, liberty, dignity. And this comes to us from the European Enlightenment, the great uh, feminist foremothers, or Mary Wollstonecraft in the 18th century and the 19th century. You had people like uh, the, the suffragists fighting for the vote. And it's a tradition, it's a great tradition of liberation. And it has freed women across the world. However, there's another school of feminism that is not part of the European Enlightenment. It comes from another tradition at which sees uh, Australian and American and British society as oppressive patriarchies. Not Maybe not as bad as Saudi Arabia, but in some ways, uh, if you read writers like, you know, radical feminist theory, theorist Catherine McKinnon, um, it's like we're captive to this male hegemony. And as a philosopher of many years, you know, I'm, I read this and I just say, well, what's the evidence? And I don't see it. I see very good evidence for equity feminism because equity feminism simply asks people to view women as equally human and to appeal to our common humanity. And it, this is persuasive. It, it's worked. It hasn't worked all, everywhere in the world. There's still a struggle for basic rights, but we've made ama- amazing progress. And the radicals that I'm talking about don't acknowledge that progress. They are teaching a generation of young women to view themselves as um, threatened and under a cloud and constrained, and they're not. They are the freest people, the most self-determining people on the earth, maybe in the history of humanity. And I just think that's wrong. I think we're giving the wrong message, and I think that message is twisted and based on false assumptions. Yeah, I, I really connect to that because I hate, I really hate this kind of prevalent victim mentality that is coming through now, especially in my generation. I came from a really, really rough background, you know, from government housing and, you know, fought my way to get here, but I don't see myself as a victim. And I don't think seeing all women as victims, I think it almost downplays women's role in the past as well, the contributions women made even before they had the vote. Even before women were had all sorts of ways to assert themselves and sometimes to control things. It's a complicated story. Men and women are equal, equally complicated, equally capable of great virtue and great vice, cruelty and and, uh, complete uh, mayhem, but also immense goodness. It depends who you're talking about, which person, and even in the same person sometimes an individual is complicated. So to take an entire sex and start talking about toxic masculinity or uh, male privilege, well, I want to know which male and not 
implicate the whole, half the human race. I mean, that's just uh, too large a category. And I don't think, we, you know, most of us think there's something wrong with uh, racial profiling. Well, I think it's wrong to gender profile as well. And I think it's not in the spirit of sort of our constitutional democratic tradition. Yeah, I, I really agree with that kind of male profiling and, and hump, lumping privilege on top of all men, especially from someone who's grown up, you know, around foster care and seeing other boys who've gone through all this rough stuff. Um, I don't think we can just lump privilege on top of that. Kind of related to that, uh, I've written about this. The um, peak Australian psychological body has now expressed interest in creating their own guidelines for men and boys based on the APA guidelines. Oh, no. So for those who don't know, the American Psychological Association, inexplicably, out of nowhere, this respected organization, it's the largest organization of of, uh, psychologists and psychology professors in, in the United States, came out with guidelines for helping men and boys and it sounds like something that was just drawn up by a radical feminist study, gender studies department, you know, or, and, and from the 1970s. It doesn't even seem contemporary. And they want us to treat masculinity as though it's a disorder in need of a cure, a pathological, uh, you know, a pathology in need of uh, therapy. And they want to practice this kind of conversion therapy on boys to turn them into what? I don't know. And it has not been well-received, I will say that. But it's very bad news that they would do that. And, yeah. and especially because boys do need help. There are a lot of uh, depressed boys, confused boys, and they're not going to be helped by attacking them, attacking their boyness. So I hope you don't do that in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I've written hoping that they won't, but we haven't seen a response from them yet on the critiques. Um Talking about helping boys, there's one thing I've also always had a problem with is the domestic violence issue only ever being um, looked at from a a male violence on on females perspective. From someone who's come from a rough background and I volunteered with kids who grew up in difficult homes, I found that it was never really that simple. Exactly. It's It's a complicated story. And if you talk to experts not ideologues, I'm talking about people that actually work in the shelters or people who police, uh, who have to go to the homes. Uh, In many cases, we're talking about violent couples. It tracks with young, younger couples, younger people, um, and they attack each other. And uh, women initiate more, um, and then the man responds by, you know, gets furious and hits back, and you have mayhem, and usually she'll uh, get injured because he's stronger, but uh, it's just false to analyze this as a problem of patriarchal oppression of women. It, we, we know that women are much more vulnerable if there are drugs and alcohol involved, if there's poverty. There are all sorts of conditions that will raise, in, increase the chances of this happening. It is not the norm. The average man is not beating his wife or girlfriend. The average woman is not beating. But women have fewer inhibitions about slapping and scratching you know um but i do believe the problem's been misdescribed and the thing that bothers me about that and i uh, people say oh you carry on too much about the statistics the data matter because you, you need to know what's going on if you want to address a problem and i'm afraid that for various reasons maybe well intended um a lot of women's groups have exaggerated the problem and misdescribed it uh, more serving an agenda and not really the needs of um, of victims and people at risk. So when I try to 
say get the best data you can, it's because I think that's the the best path to a solution to helping people in in genuinely in need. Yeah, to fix the problem, you need to know what the problem is. And right now, it seems like it's more about virtue signaling or pushing a political agenda. And just trashing men. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry, the answer to male chauvinism is not female chauvinism. In misogyny, it's not misandry. It's it's mutuality. It's mutual respect. And that's something exciting. And it's something the millennials can do. That should be the third wave of feminism, not all this intersectionality and tribalism and blaming and privilege and safe spaces. That's a that in itself is dysfunctional. What we need is to, the third wave of feminism should be genuine equality. And I see that in young people. I mean, they're guys. They don't look at the girls as their inferiors. They're friends. And there's mutual respect. I see that. And I think that's a very positive change. But it could be, the whole thing could be ruined if people turned it into a war on men. So kind of connecting to that, to young people and, you know, safe spaces, what's happening on campus. Um, can you take us a little bit through your academic journey and what you think has is going wrong on campus, whether it, you think it's always been there or if it's gotten particularly worse in academia recently? It's been a problem in the academy for a long time, and I know that because I was there. I've <laughs> been there for a long time, way back in the last century. I was a young uh, professor of philosophy and taught a course in feminist theory. Well, I didn't I, I didn't actually teach it then. I taught that later, but I re researched it and decided I didn't want to teach it um, in the 80s because I looked at the texts and I was just shocked at how uh, harsh it was. And, and uh, the, I had never seen this before. As a philosophy professor, I used to love to assign my students readings and they would read like, really great persuasive arguments in favor of one metaphysical position and then they'd read the and become persuaded and think how could anybody not believe in determinism and then I would give them another set of articles and they would think like how could anybody have, how could I have ever believed that and they had that wonderful experience of it as a, a cognitive you know, it's a shift in your opinion and your perspective and you change and you see what you hadn't seen before and every class I'd ever taught, we did that on issues, you know, in philosophy. These books were not like that. The, the feminist curriculum was actually there to change your consciousness in a particular way. And all of the readings were mutually reinforcing. And there was really no challenge, unless it, was, it came from someone who was more extreme. Sometimes they can be challenged that way. They were not challenged by reality. And they, they would not subject their ideas to traditional critiques. And students don't know this. Like, if you go take a history course, um, a physics course, you know, your professor, you know, managed to get tenure and, and had to write papers and send them out and get them published, get his books or her books published. Um, but in women's studies, they do that. But who reviews it? It's not really, it's, it's true believers, people that already share your assumptions because they have never allowed libertarians, conservatives, moderates have not been invited to the table. There's a monopoly on the ideas. It's an unwritten rule that those who study gender must be from the very far left or the you know most you know uh, the lunatic fringe in some t some cases, and so I, I think women have been cheated out of having a voice, having people that are more sympathetic to just the aspirations of average men and women, and we have these eccentric scholars who interpret our lives and increasingly being taken seriously in social media and um, in journalism. Yeah, I also find that, um, so because I work with Generation Liberty and working with young people on campus, and I'm generally really positive about the future and young people, 
people ask me why after they see, you know, protests and safe spaces and things getting shut down. The re- I always tell them, if you go down at the ground level, there's, the kids are just the same as they were back then. There's just a minority of students, which I think are aided by those kind of academics that you're Absolutely. talking about. They're the enablers. And by the way, just to be clear, not all, I'm not talking about just a feminist academic. There are many, even in women's studies, there are serious scholars who abide by the traditional protocols of, of, of good uh, scholarship. I'm talking about the sort of agenda-driven ideologues, you know, that, that talk about rape culture and, and, and patriarchy and, and toxic masculinity. They use these phrases, safe spaces, trigger warnings. All of that is a kind of, I hate to say this, but it's kind of like a cult and people get drawn into it. It must be attractive. I can kind of see that. Maybe if I was young and impressionable, and you know, my teachers were telling me that the world is this terrible place, and let's come here and don't be triggered and be safe. And and you know, I and many people that I know have experienced trauma, and it's terrible. And I, we have to be sympathetic. You never know; it could be man or a woman what people have gone through, but. Most people don't go get PTSD and need trigger warnings. In fact, there's no evidence at all that that helps. There's no evidence that safe spaces, unless that's just a, uh, another word for just getting together with your friends and feeling relaxed, and or you know where you can speak up about things that trouble you. But that that's not, that's tre- taking our universities and turning them to centers of therapy rather than enlightenment. People say, oh, well, I don't see myself in the curriculum. You're not supposed to see yourself in the curriculum. The curriculum <laughs> is supposed to take you out of yourself and expose you to a, a wide, great world of new ideas and experiences and thinking. So I, I think this is an anti-intellectual movement. And as a feminist from the who became a feminist in the during the sexual revolution in the 70s, it was back then it was about fun and liberation and it was it was joy. And now it seems so negative and fearful. And it, it, I don't like seeing women becoming bullies, of uh, bullying men. I, I hate male bullies, but I don't think female bullies are any better. Yeah, well, we have a, a um, very similar problem. So there's uh, generally th- groups called the Women's Collectives on most campuses. Mm. And um, I've noticed that they don't seem to be spending a lot of their time genuinely helping, you know, you know um, single moms or actually women who are in need on campus, they spend most of their time protesting other women who don't agree with them 100%. So I screened a film that came to yell and scream, the yell and scream at the pro-life groups or any of the Christian groups on campus. And it's coming to the point where it's like, I think a lot of women are turning away from feminism because of this radical is so. See, feminists. what you're describing is so destructive to the cause of women. Yeah. And having taught um, the history of philosophy and the history of feminist philosophy, one of the things scholars have found is that when women made the greatest progress, and that was in the 18th century when suddenly started with aristocratic women breaking out and uh, entering the, the public sphere and writing and not just being in there uh, you know, sort of sequestered and doing embroidery and playing piano, they suddenly came out into the great world. That was because for uh, it, it, it was a miracle. A, a conservative women and radical women had the same idea and worked together. They didn't necessarily like each other, but you had Mary Wollstonecraft, who was like a very radical and wild and fantastic woman. She read, led one of the most exciting lives of the 18th century. But then there was another woman who was very 
you know, an evangelical Christian aristocrat, but who came out of this amazing group called the Clapham sect, which um, was was where like humanitarianism began. This was a group that was like for children's rights and and helping animal rights. And uh, William Wilberforce of the abolitionist movement was there. It came out of this group of this amazing group, and. And they were arguing for women's rights uh, for a different reason. Well, particularly uh, Hannah Moore, because but she did it for sort of conservative reasons. She thought that women were the conscience of the nation, and she believed in feminine heroism. You should be domestic heroines. She told women, and from aristocrats to poor, you know, uh, working class, you know, scullery maids. She she thought that they should learn to read, they should be educated, and they should help the poor. And women listened. She was more popular in her day than. Than Jane Austen, um, and even uh, more popular than Mary Wollstonecraft. But Wollstonecraft was the intellectual, and Mary uh, Hannah More was sort of just this public-spirited woman and very effective. They worked, and they 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 took the society to a new level. Women came to see themselves in a different way. It happened again in the United States in the 19th and early 20th century for the suffrage movement. I won't go into the details, but I've written about this in a little book called Freedom Feminism, where you had the suffragists working with the temperance movement. And that sounds all very reactionary, you know, being for prohibition. But actually, it was a women's issue. I mean, they saw the saloon as the enemy of the home, and all the major suffragists were believed in temperance. It was just the, the way people thought then. Uh, but it was conservative women working with progressive women. And then we saw it again in the United States in the second wave. If you go back and look at the big legislation, major, you know, the first Equal Pay Act and, and Title IX and major decisions by the Supreme Court just knocking down one arbitrary barrier to women after, to women after the other. And it was often done by um, uh, just a collection of conservatives and liberals working together. Um, men and women, but mostly promoted by women, but sometimes the men were in power. It was the, mainly a male Supreme Court that, that did these rulings. So what do we have today? When women, when the women's movement has only a radical wing, you do, you're not going to have a, a mobilization around women's issues. Now, I think the big mobilization we need today is probably helping, uh, listening to women in the, in, de- in the developing world, who are just starting their women's movement, and they're asking for our help. I go to international women's conferences, and I meet, you know, the the Mary Wollstonecraft or the Elizabeth Cady Stanton Sojourner Truth of their society, um, and these are the bravest women in the world. But they need attention, and they need they need sisterhood, uh, and we're not giving because uh, you know what? American women and possibly Australian young women are so carried away with their own oppression, even though they're not oppressed, they're carried away with their you know, how toxic men are, even though they live with the, the nicest men, in, you know, some of the nicest men in the world. Um, and it's, they're not seeing, they have a distorted picture, and it makes them incapable of, you know, you, you talk about the pro-life uh, group. They're never going to agree on on abortion, but they might agree on helping, you know, have an, an, like an underground railroad for women who are trying to escape husbands in Saudi Arabia that are beating them. And there's an app now that you can track your wife or your sister or your mother, you know, where she goes that these men can use. And there was just recently this woman, young woman, Rahaf Conan, who was in the Bangkok airport trying to flee to Australia from an abusive family in Saudi Arabia. And the Thai government was about to give her over to 
the police, but she went. She was up thinking of committing suicide. She was sequestered in a hotel, and thinking her this like scary brother and father going to come and take her to God knows. She thought she she was thinking of suicide. Instead, she went on her phone and told Twitter. She just said, "I'm here." And, it's, and people like me, I saw it. I saw this tweet because it went viral. People started. And then human rights, uh, women's rights group in Thailand saw it and mobilized. And she found um, asylum in uh, in Canada. They could do it quickly. I mean, she wanted to come to Australia, but it was quicker to go to Canada. But, you know, you'd like that like college women would be aware of things like that. And, and you know, and... and they have the consciousness. They have the concern for women. I know that, but I think it's been misdirected. Today, I am sitting down with the myth, the legend, that is Joanne Tran. Joanne, you've been in the news uh, the last couple of weeks, mainly, mainly last week. Can you explain to us why that is and how this all came about? So around a week and a half ago, I wrote and I had an article published in the Daily Telegraph about why I personally won't be going to the school strike for climate march. Um, so basically that was um, that was held on a Friday around 12 o'clock and that encouraged um, school kids to um, wag school to fight for climate change. So... When this article came out, I know from myself and a lot of people at the IPA and also um, a lot of the libertarian movement, liberal Mm -hmm. movement, was very supportive of you. Mm -hmm. Was your school supportive of you when this happened as well? Um, In terms of the reaction of um, from my school and especially my classmates has definitely not been the most positive. Um, In fact, like I've been... I've been cyberbullied by my own classmates online across various platforms, whether that was on Sky News or my own Facebook profile. And I just think it's absolutely ridiculous because the thing is that if um, someone like that was also very politically outspoken as well, that wrote an article or was in the media for like being a pro-climate striker, they definitely wouldn't have um, gotten the same backlash like I did. Yeah, I really found think that's very true I found a very similar experience with myself I was always a very outspoken person in in high school and you know was a debater and and always found there was an immense amount of support for me whilst I was still politically left and Mm -hmm. then I found that it changed when I decided to kind of change my opinions and where I sat on the on the political spectrum so did you notice a, a shift of how you were treated before and after um the thing is, that I feel like the school, I've always made my views very clear in class, whether it was debating classmates or teachers, but it was sort of like when I actually, like, you know, spoke out against, like, about it, like, to the media and to, like, the wider audience apart from, like, my school, that was when they started going a bit um, berserk about the entire situation because I've, there have been multiple students at my school that have been, that have, like, spoken to the media about, various political issues as well um and a lot of times they have been on the left or the political spectrum in terms of those issues but my school and like the department itself like never went after them about the issue so it's it doesn't seem to be an issue of they're having a problem with you being outspoken it has problem with you being outspoken in the wrong way is how they see it and Mm. I find that really really concerning because I do think we need to be encouraging our students to speak up more especially about political issues that concern them. But that shouldn't just be that the realm of, you know, one side of politics that speaks up. And 
one of the pieces of advice that I always give young people on campus and you're in high school so I would encourage you to keep doing the same thing is a lot of people feel like they can't speak up but I always say say what you're thinking because you're there to learn and you need to express your views if you need to if you want to test them and you want to get what you're supposed to get out of university and also you really don't know who else is agreeing with you and if you stay silent then you're never going to meet the people who do agree with you so I guess even though you've got this negative feedback from one side you are getting this positive feedback and I imagine that you're making different friends now yeah definitely like um it was only when my article came out that like various people started messaging me just like I'm not even friends but like acquaintances from other schools that like like you know like you literally said what we've been thinking this entire time and like we're so glad that someone actually spoke out against this because like I certainly wouldn't like like being brave enough to do that so it's been like incredibly like rewarding in a sense that like you know I'm actually representing the view of like the majority of people not just the loud minority yeah, I really think that, that there are, would be lots and lots more students who are thinking exactly the same thing as you and who are perhaps a little bit scared to speak out. And there is just that problem of the loud minority, which seems like I thought it was, you know, a, a domain of the university campus, but it mm. seems to be something that's also at high schools right now. But the only thing we need to do to fight back against that kind of loud minority that's trying to take control is just to say what we think and exercise our rights for free speech. So I'd like to move on and just tell you that right the stuff that you're saying that's um, being told to you in class, it's very interesting because it sounds exactly the same as the stuff that I heard in class. Mm-hmm. And I'm 10 years older than you. Yeah. So they were telling me when I was in school that the, um, that, you know, the air would be unbreathable in 20 years, that climate change would be catastrophic in 15 years. So... It's one of the reasons I'm very sceptical for this very alarmist version of climate change. Did, did you think that this was a continuous problem or do you think it was something that just happened in your generation? Or I honestly thought that was just something that happened in my generation, especially with the rate that they're you know, teaching us about this entire thing in school and in our curriculum as well. I thought it was only something that was relatively recently, but it seems like it's been happening for a while now. And that's really quite concerning because they're lying about the entire thing. Yeah, it's, and it's um, it's really worrying because it's the same stuff being recycled, but it always has this kind of detonator for 10 to 15 years, which yeah. encourages this kind of radical activism rather than anything that's productive. Because, you know, if the world's ending in 12 years, we need to get out on the streets now yeah. and go crazy. Um, but, you know, if climate change is a legitimate issue that needs to be, that's not immediate, but needs to be addressed, then that means that we have to have considered conversations we need to look long term and that's how we really want could solve this problem if they were trying to solve it so I don't really understand what they're trying to achieve because this kind of detonator doesn't produce practical solutions I Mm -hmm. think yeah definitely because you see what like the organization that was running the protests were advocating for things like 100% renewables and like just economically like unviable projects like that and you talk to these kids about like you know like what exactly they are they advocating for and they always say oh 100% renewables I'm like well okay like how are we going to do that have you considered the economic arguments for that and especially in Australia since we're a resource-based economy how that is going to affect like literally like the majority of Australians yeah and also I 
I don't know if you've got to watch this yet. So mm. um, on SBS, there's an interview between Craig Kelly yeah. and two young students yes, talking, about, yeah. talking about this climate change stuff. And even though um, it's a bit frustrating to watch and a lot of the young people find the, the young people in it quite annoying because they're quite forthright, mm-hmm. um, I actually felt quite a bit of... Uh, quite a bit sorry for those two young people because Mm. I felt their frustration when they were given the other side of the argument so they were given here's the other side of the argument and they just never heard it before that's what it came across as and they got frustrated because they didn't have the tools at their disposal to be able to debate back intelligently yeah so they got visibly frustrated and angry and my my note of sympathy was yes you have a right to be angry because you haven't been taught everything you're just angry at the wrong person yeah. right now is is any of the other side of this kind of discussion ever taught um in your school right now so like i said in my article like it was only when i took economics it was the first ever class that like you know that we were actually presented about the facts and not just this sort of like you know the same sort of lines like you know coal is bad mining is going to be the end of us we have to switch to renewables now otherwise we're all going to die sort of like being like you know like literally like shoved down our throats and even then like i'm not saying like economics is like a really a right-wing subject in fact like i have like significant problems with the hsc economic syllabus because it's very Keynesian. it's very sort of like fiscal stimulus rather than fiscal discipline um but even then like economics was the first ever class that i ever had that actually presented the facts to us about like mining and how important it actually is um for like or like for pe- millions of people around the world to be lifted out of poverty yeah, and um, there's other arguments that I've I've heard and learnt while during my time at the IPA, and also by reading the IPA book Climate Change: The Facts. Like mm. one of the things I commonly say to young people is, um, "Coal saved the trees," which is a weird one. But before um, the Industrial Revolution and the use of coal-powered heat, Britain was pretty much flattened for trees because trees were just chopped up and used for fuel. So once you switched over to more efficient fuel, coal, it yeah. meant that tree life came back um and pretty much the forests of britain came back because they just non-existent then so this is a really complicated thing and also you know the issue with um you know stopping adani and and stopping all these coal mines is if we don't supply the coal to these countries that desperately need it they're still going to burn coal they're just going to burn brown coal which is going to be a lot worse for this environment so i can see what we really need now is nuances what your article argued for is we need to look at practical, real solutions rather than kind of activist virtue signaling solutions. Yeah, definitely. Because if you ask them about the solutions for this entire thing, when I present them the facts about like the economic arguments, they just go on like full on shutdown mode because they've never been like presented this like these arguments before, and they just don't know the solution to these to this issue. Yeah, um, taking a tiny little change of direction. So you're a Generation Liberty member yes. and you signed up when you were 15, am I correct? Yes, I did sign up when I was 15. So um, the first event you went to was the Dangers of Socialism. Can you give me some insights about what you remember from that yeah. night and was it, uh, what good experiences you got out of it? So the Dangers of Socialism event was um, the first ever political event that I ever went to. And I remember it was like after debating practice and like I dragged my two um, like friends that were like major lefties to the event. And then um, 
yeah, it was like my first ever political event and it was just incredibly like like exciting to be in a room full of people that are like very politically aware and also on, I guess, my side of the political spectrum as well. And just to see that, you know, there are people out there that believe in the same things that I believe in. I just think that's like incredibly inspiring. And also in terms of the event, like it was so like it was so well done. Like it was, all the speakers were incredibly interesting as well. And, like, especially because it was about socialism, we had, like, a speaker that came from communist China um, speaking about the entire thing. So I remember, like, my two, like, like two lefty friends literally just shut up about the entire thing about how, you know, socialism is the best and how, like, you know, like, you know, we need to escape this, like, oppressed system of capitalism. But, like, you hear someone actually from a socialist regime about, like, you know, their experiences and it's like, no, like, it's literally opposite of freedom. Yeah, I found Warren Wang, um, that that, uh, Chinese uh, speaker, was probably the most impactful because it Mm. it came from personal experience. And I felt the whole room really, really felt that speech in particular. But considering that was your first event when you were 15, can I ask you how you came to form your political opinions? Who were the main writers that you started listening to? Would you just sort of find yourself as a conservative, a classical liberal or a libertarian? Mm. Yeah, so I've always been quite politically aware my entire life. But it was only when I, like, in fact, I would always say I was more leaning towards the left side of, like, social issues. Because I feel like that's all, that's like the status quo that we sort of get fed at school anyways. And, like, a lot of the kids around me were quite left. But it was only when I was, like, around year nine or year eight when I started, like, you know, speaking up in class about, like, you know, like, you know, my concerns and my beliefs or my arguments for this certain issue that, like, you know, I would start getting slammed. And I guess, like, you know, I went through sort of like a rebellious phase. I was like, you know what, you know, screw you or I'm going to go, like, you know, full on um, radical. And just I started, like, researching a lot more. And um, like I started, like, you know, speaking to other people about it. Um, and in terms of, like, where I would sort of put myself on the political spectrum, I think I would call myself a classical liberal, um, like I believe, um, I believe in like the freedom of the, indi- of the individual. I believe that, you know, um, capitalism is the best way to go in terms of like, you know, our economic system. So classically liberal figures, um, that you came across or read, um, have mm. you read Milton Friedman or Thomas yes. Sowell? Yeah. So, um, Milton Friedman, capitalism and freedom, capitalism and freedom, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah capitalism and freedom was the first ever like, like right wing sort of like book that I ever read um and like I just found that entire book um like literally like it opened up my eyes about the entire issue because we always get sort of like fed this sort of like blind that is like you know capitalism is the most oppressive system in the world and like we need socialism and everyone can have liberty I'm like no that's not the case in fact capitalism literally is like you know like you're the individual like you have like like there's like there isn't a government out there to sort of like you know enforce um like enforce like their like regulation and like their views on you yeah yeah Uh, it's actually really similar to me Milton Friedman was one of the first people to really open up my eyes about and he just makes such clear arguments and manages to take complicated things and make them very easy to understand if which is you know the most intelligent people can do that yeah um so if you had one piece of advice for other young people, um, whether that be in their last few years of high school or in their first year on campus, um, who are not left, who are classically liberal, conservative or libertarian, Mm -hmm. who are having a little bit of a hard time, what would be your advice to them? 
um, like hanging there because like um, there's actually quite a lot of people that actually believe in like your views as well and you're definitely not the only one. It's just a matter of seeking out that sort of support network that you definitely need because I know that um, when I was in class like and when, when I always found myself in the minority in terms of my views, I definitely needed to find like a support network and like through joining Generation Liberty and and even a political party, I definitely have gotten that support network. So I think just finding people and meeting people that have similar values and beliefs to you is incredibly important. Yeah, and I think Generation Liberty is becoming more and more that these days. So Generation Liberty is a point of real growth and we you know we're getting to more campuses than ever. And one of the things I really want to make it about is that we're not just telling students stuff, so it's always great to go out and do talks, but I also want to get feedback from them about um, what we can do to help and also to be that support network because it can be a tiny bit tough sometimes on campus or even in the last few years of high school, it seems. Yeah. But um, thank you very much for your time today, Joanne. It was lovely having you in the podcast and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more from you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> okay, thank you to Christina Hoff-Summers and Joanne Tran and thank you very much to Renee Gorman for mm. all of her hard work and great work putting it all together for those wonderful interviews. Bit jelly, actually. Uh, yeah, we would have liked to meet her, but, you know, uh, well done, Renee. But uh, let us get into some stories that have made us laugh this week. And this one really tickled my fancy. So Beto O'Rourke, a guy who is running for the Democratic nominee for president, he is uh, looking pretty good at the moment. He was the leader for most donations, like most amount of donations received in the first 24 hours of a campaign, which shows like this man's got groundswell. He even now got Bernie Sanders, who destroyed everyone else. Um, and he is running an interesting campaign, uh, basically a rehash of whatever Obama's doing with a Gen X spin. And he gave an interview with the New York Times, I think it was. And there a lot of a lot came out of that about like uh, his marriage and stuff like that. And that started to get debated. But I think everyone glossed over the main takeaway for me. Mm. Let me read you a paragraph here. James has been very obsessed with this story. So better O'Rourke, right? He's just lost to Ted Cruz. He was so close to beating him for the Senate race in Texas. That's mm-hmm. how he got famous. Last year. Yep. Uh, so here's a direct quote from afterwards. Beto, on the other hand, was more prone to higher highs and lower lows, was in a funk. In January, Beto hit the road, much as his father had done before him, and drew energy from the people he'd met. So far, so good. And on one stop in New Mexico, he didn't write about in his blog, hello, by eating New Mexican dirt said to have regenerative powers. Mm. He bought some home for the family to eat too. Okay. There are some things you should just never tell the website. I, I mean, he's got away with it, but the man ate dirt. He like, did. literally. He didn't just eat dirt in an election. He literally ate dirt with regenerative powers. So, and you're telling me this didn't go, this didn't cause much of a splash. Like, it caused a certain amount of splash. Like, it was overshadowed by the other stuff. You're saying not big enough. Not big enough. The man ate dirt. How can you elect a man that has eaten dirt? Yeah. I've eaten some crazy stuff. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm not electing I'm, you. I'm not going for president. It's, it's true. Is there a reason why? It has regenerative power. Why can't I say that word? Regenerative powers. Oh. So there is a is guy in New Mexico yeah, exactly. laughing his butt off to this day. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. actually got better at all. Well, well it's going to be good for business, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, like, I've, I've eaten worms before when I was in yep. Africa. I ate worms. It tasted like worms. Did you do it after losing an election? No, I did it. Um, Before the I did it. I was actually sort of peer pressured into it, but um, <laughs> and I've eaten chicken feet. Yep, that, that was actually quite like legitimate, legitimately tasty. Chicken but, um, feet. I love chicken feet. 
Look, I'm, I'm glad that this segment quickly became embarrassing things from Pete's parts <laughs> that is now broadcasting. Very therapeutic. Maybe this, this is why Beto did, <laughs> because this is really easy to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, you know, he's eating dirt, and um, whether or not you think that makes him a good president or not is up to you. That's but democracy. It's definitely not projecting. All right, uh, let us move on to another one. You know, I'm I'm pro Beto and he's dirt. Yep. <clears throat> Sorry, Beto. Add it to my policies. So, Beto, if you're listening, and I know you are. You've got Peter Gregory's vote. Well, I should tell you where your heart lies. I just say, I just, I just say, I, I support him slightly more. <laughs> I don't support him per se. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Yeah. All right, let's do another segment. Ah, oh, damn. I, was, I wanted 20 more minutes of embarrassing stories <laughs> with Pete's past. Well, see what happened was. No, <laughs> we don't want to, We don't need to do that. All right. So Brexit protest banners. You know, uh, one of my pet hates is there's this. It's sort of crept into middle class protests that. Um, we're going to send have all these clever, and I'm waving my fingers around. You can't say that because this is on a radio. But yep. um, clever banners. Yeah, got to have clever banners. Cleverly worded banners, and it's just like, oh, it's so annoying. And I know, I know that you know you shouldn't let that annoy you, but it's just a real pet hate of mine. Yeah, like I hate pretty much anyone at a protest, but it's the people oh, with I mean, the funny banners. And it's just like, are you here for a cause or are you here to go viral? Well, I like, or yeah, or be like. Massively smart. No, but I, I, I don't want to protest. But anyway, let's do some of the banners from the Brexit protest that happened last week. And I'll read up to the best one. So this is an anti-Brexit protest. This is just, anti- anti-Brexit. Just to make sure. Yeah, just, yep, just, yep, in case you um, didn't realise that. There's an, and within this category, there's a, there's a sub-category yep. that are kid banners, oh, uh, kids banners. And amongst that, this little kid had a banner that said, even my class council can make better decisions than the government. Mm. I don't think so. No. And stop being so annoying. <laughs> but that would be a, uh election team. Sorry, that would be a kids council that has eaten a lot of dirt in their time. Well, so maybe if it works for better, it's going to work for the kids council. Maybe that's where I got it wrong. Uh, I hate crowds, but I hate Brexit more. I would really rather we didn't. Oh, um, There's a couple of actual rude ones here. This is mortifyingly suboptimal. This is like when Jerry Hallowell, Hallowell overestimated as a solo artist and left the Spice Girls. Don't laugh, Dana. You're just encouraging them. Oh, that one That one caused that was, physical they, pain. That burns, <laughs> that actually, actually, that one. I actually love that. Okay, fair right, enough. Maybe uh, that one was funny. I, I have my least, no, two least favourite ones that yeah, really okay. grind in my gears. Uh, if at first you don't succeed, vote, vote, and vote again. No, that's, that's not. Is that how democracy works? It's just, you know, keep doing it until you're right and then don't do it anymore? I think they can have another vote after... They've left. Yeah. Then you can have a vote. Then. Like, if you elect the Labor Party, you don't have another election before the Labor Party's taken government. Yeah. So let's have that's the people to vote once they've Because left. that's how democracy works. That's like, wrong. sometimes people lose. I've got another one here. Oh, look, grammatically correct, yeah, properly spelt placards. And the woman Get over was, yourself. The woman like, had, like, so, pearls so, yeah, and, like, a fur jacket. Like, no one has ever looked more rich than this person. <laughs> uh, it's just a woman, she's just like, look, we should be listened to because we can spell on our placards and you can't. Yeah, you're, you're too dumb to know stuff. Yeah, you're too dumb to know how to spell and therefore you shouldn't be trusted with a vote about whether or not we should leave the EU. I chucked that on Word and didn't Google to see if there were any spelling mistakes, but unfortunately she did get it right. Yeah, so, you'd have to. Which... Uh, which was a shame. So, yeah, look. Oh, hang on. She's got EU, we love you on either side of the paragraph without any uh, comma between EU and we. So, well, hmm, don't know about go. that one. Hmm. Mm. Did you know that EU sounds like you and that's another source of many funny banners? Anyway. Anyway, Pete could keep going on this for about three and a half hours. and We'll keep, we'll keep you updated on these as they yeah, unfold. As Pete sees more banners that he doesn't like, uh, just interject in the rest of the podcast. All right, uh, I got another one here. So... 
Uh, speaking of British people, they need to get over themselves. J.K. Rowling. Oh, chill out. <laughs> chill out. Yeah. Sorry. Nina knows exactly I, what I'm I talking about. I can't hold it. Right. I, I can't really hold it. No, <laughs> we actually encourage you to laugh on this one. Instead of Nina's just, a huge. Well, I'm, yeah. But like Nina, are you a Harry Potter fan? I'm not. Uh, I. You can say I am. I'm a okay. massive Harry Potter. Are fan. Are you actually? Mm-hmm. All right. Like read all the books, watched all the movies. Yes. Huh? Is that is that is that count as massive? Then I am too. Then. Okay. Okay. I got about halfway through. Depends the books. if you enjoyed them or not. Well, I got halfway through the books and I've seen most of the films. Yeah, so you're just a uh, you're t- just one of those people. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Big Game Charlie. I just don't like fantasy. Like, I just I'm not a big fan. Like, hey, why why real. can't the spell from the last book be used right now? Like, yeah. why can't everything be solved at all times? Anyway, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and I get you know it's humans and it's boring. Right. <laughs> what? It's I don't know what that means. Boring, boring stuff. Anyway, J.K. Rowling needs to chill out. And she's talking about like the wiz- expanded wizarding world because there's some money somewhere in the world that she doesn't have yet. So yep. she, they're still making some books. And uh, now we have this character called Grindelwald who I'd never heard of, but like apparently committed some crimes and they made a movie about it. Is that, am I, am he, I was a pre, right? he was a pre-character. All right, so Him pre- and he's, he's in a fantastic sto- bit. Yeah, so Dumbledore origin story. Yeah, and uh, now she's given an interview where she's talking about the relationship between Dumbledore and Grindelwald, and she says their relationship was incredibly intense. It was passionate, and it was a love relationship. Yeah, just chill out, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> well, she's got a bit of a uh, she's got a bit of a track record with this. Yeah. So um, she said in 2007 that Dumbledore was gay. Yep. So, and then people were like, not oh. in the books. No, it was after the final books. In the, yeah. in the, in the, I think in her blog or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, it was at like a script reading. It was after all the books yeah. had come out. And she goes, oh, yeah, Dumbledore was gay. So, yeah. okay, fine. Uh, but uh, but with this one, right, she didn't actually say it was ever, they had a, uh, an actual gay relationship. She just said it, it was passionate and it was a love relationship. And she's copying grief from the diversity crowd because she's not actually, this is actually, apparently this is called queer baiting. Right. So you hint that something's could be gay, but mm-hmm. not actually is. Doesn't actually say that it is. Anyway, but there's heaps of them. So in 2014, she went out on a limb and said that Ravenclaw, uh, Ravenclaw's Anthony Goldstein was Jewish. Uh, Nagini... Again, not in the books? Not in the books. Right. Nagini, Voldemort's pet snake, was actually an East Asian woman who has been cursed. Um, she said... Yeah, I think... Oh, she said that Hermione could be black. She never said she was white, so she could be black. Well, so there, there you go. We all saw the book covers. Yeah, so uh, anyway... But this is the thing. It's just like, look, J.K. Rowling, you weren't as progressive in your books as you'd like to be now. Well, I mean, she was perfectly progressive. She, it's just but I'm just saying, like, this is her trying to get points with a woke crowd yeah. by just rewriting all of her books. And if they came out today, they would hit every single diversity uh, quota in the world. But they didn't. Yeah. So, sorry about it. Because now, yeah, like, she's done this huge... Now she's one of the, the woke crowd. Yeah. And so people go like, oh, there's not that many diverse characters in your book. Yeah. Well, books. And so, obviously, she's going back and so, changing them, but... But, yeah, just chill out. You wrote Harry Potter. You've earned more money than anyone needs in their lives. I loved it. Uh, Pete loved it, and he hates every part of pop culture. It is beyond shocking to me that he's <laughs> actually seen all the films. Uh, it's a good movie. I'm sure they are, just not for me. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I did... I was, like, showing the last Harry Potter film... And I spent most of the first hour and a half going, "Who's that?" <laughs> or just like <laughs> one of those. Skip the whole thing. Does, well, because they put like it wasn't my choice for movie night, and I said, "Look, if we watch this movie, I'm going to be asking everyone people. who people are and why I should care." If you just watch a bit longer, you'll get it. Yeah, you I'm don't sure. have to stop and like, ask everyone. What, what's 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 that mean? <laughs> Where did he get that one from? Yeah, does he know magic? Why does he have that scar? 
Anyway, I did know that, but all right. Uh, let us talk about the last one because this show is getting long. Uh, Pete. Okay, so there's a journo in the in the UK, Carolyn Farrow. 44 years old, was the subject of an investigation by Surrey Police over tweets she sent referring to an adult child of Susie Gray, uh, sorry, Susie Green, head of Mermaids, a charity concerned with transgender children. I'm struggling. Uh, Farrow says the investigation arises because she misgendered the child who was born now but now identifies as a female. And in a kicker, the police have announced that she could go to jail because one of the penalties for this is apparently, well, the maximum penalty is six months in jail. So the upshot of all that is that a journalist can go to jail in the United Kingdom. Yep. For simply misgendering. Look, we've all lost a debate. <laughs> like, because this started on a Good Morning Amer- uh, Good Morning Britain or whatever Piers Morgan show is. They started on a debate. Mm-hmm. She got taken to task. So she subsequently waits until the other person slips up on Twitter and then takes an investigation. We've all lost a debate. Is that right? You so do they have some... Yeah, so Money. it started on yeah this seg- like this morning TV segment debating. Mm-hmm. That's where they met. They got into a debate. One person won. One person did not. Subsequently, police charges filed. You just need to learn how to lose. And this woman says that her tweets delete after two weeks. Apparently, that's the thing you can do. Mm-hmm. So she actually can't remember what she wrote. Right. But um, that seems weird. I think a lot <laughs> of people. Gonna, I, I don't. I don't know if that's true. Well, if it's true, I think a lot of people should put it in yeah, on yeah. their Twitter thing. That sounds. I, I, I never agree with myself from two weeks ago. Like, I would love a blank slate every two weeks. Imagine stuff you said. Yeah, yeah. Things <laughs> you did. People I am. Let's have a, let's have a what's uh, it called? Mulligan. Yep. Um, anyway, right. so we'll keep you updated on what happens with that because yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, that, yeah, so she said she's dropped the complaint, but uh, also the complaint hasn't been dropped. So someone is telling porkies all right uh last story i've got this one breaking overnight i want to say or very recently uh a guy from lithuania has scammed facebook and google into handing over more than 172 million dollars that's a lot of money 172 million how did he do it sending them fake invoices really amazing so he would just send them an invoice for something. Someone at Google or Facebook would just pay it because why not? Wow, eh? uh, Who cares? And he makes away with $172 million. Uh, and he's finally, you know, been arrested for it. I would say he went a bit too far with it. You've got to settle at 40 and just count your winnings. Or just uh, once you get to... 172, you've got to stay away. Once you get to nine figures. Yeah, someone's going to start asking questions. But the point for me from this is maybe big tech isn't as smart as we think they are. Well, because everyone is terrified that big tech's running the world and they're deciding what you watch and they're deciding what you think. And maybe that is all true, but they also lost $172 million in fake invoices to a man from Lithuania. Like no one oversaw that. Where's your fancy algorithm now? Yeah. Where's the algorithm that shows you that? What was he actually charging them for? Uh, services what was he charging for uh, it's just yeah like services or updates and stuff like that and just, what? Uh, yeah uh, so it's just I weird they so already have their own team he targeted right. uh, sorry uh, emails designed to look like invoices from major, major Asian hardware manufacturer Quantum Computer Inc which they regularly conduct in multi-million dollar transactions uh, and yeah he just goes alright here's a bill and someone goes alright there you go and uh Wow, know, no, no oversight it's like why, why did that go to Lithuania that seems weird no, but, um, no one checked yeah. Well, no one knows where Lithuanian Maybe <laughs> Big Lithuanian Tech. is. I can't even say it. Yeah, it's near Russia. Shout out Linus Glazer for the Denver Nuggets. Anyway, why is um, Nina writing this down? Exactly. <laughs> Maybe Big second. Tech isn't as scary as we think it is. Well, is my conclusion. 
And I look, you know, an old-fashioned paper invoice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like the abacus. Yeah, this is why, yeah, Pete is right. Technology is a sin. No, right. I like technology. I'm not one of those other people <laughs> who don't like, you know, there's a lot of people who don't like. Yeah, 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 that's what I meant. Uh, cool. That is it for the show this week. So thank you to Christina Hoff-Summers, Joy Tran, and Renee Gorman for all of their hard work putting uh, most of the show together and allowing me and Pete to sit back and watch footy. Mm. Um Honestly, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you uh, to everyone for listening and subscribing. Available on all good podcast apps, as is the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. Make sure you're heading over and subscribing to that one as well. Make sure you're telling your friends and family about the show. They can subscribe anywhere they want as well. And if you are listening through our website, please head on over to a podcast app. It is so much easier for you and better for us. Uh, and Nina, where can people go if they're already subscribed to both podcasts, they've already downloaded and uh, the latest episodes, and they've already left us five-star reviews, what can they do after that? Well, visit the website, ipa.org.au. And if you like to donate, click on the donate button. And if you want to become a member or do you have someone else that you think will be good for um, as a member, just click on the join button. And starting so as low as $22 per year, you can become one of the largest voice of freedom in Australia. I threw Nina off halfway through that because my chair just absolutely Yeah, you distracted me. For the third time you this podcast. You distract me. For the third time in the last 10 minutes, my chair has absolutely fallen beneath me. It's a sign. I don't even think I'm gaining Is weight. Is it? It's a sign. <laughs> I'm going to do some uh, one of those pinch tests. Pinch test. Yeah. Oh. I don't know what they are, but football players say them. So I'm going to oh. sound smart by saying them. If as you well. can pinch yourself on That, that is. All right. <laughs> c- calling this to water. See you guys next week. Stay up. You're